All right, let's do it. Uh, from ESPN PTI fame, one of our favorites, the great Michael Wilbon is joining us here on WBH Radio. How are you, sir? William, I'm good this evening. I'm, I'm pretty good on this playoff weekend. How are you? I'm good, sir. Thank you so much. Mr. Wilbon, I want to talk about uh, uh, your career as a writer a little bit. Okay. I I enjoy going back and reading the work of some of our favorite television personalities. If there was one piece from your career that highlights Mike Wilbon or epitomizes Mike Wilbon, the writer, uh, what what piece would that be? Oh, my goodness. <clears throat> you asked me to go back <laughs> over too many years now. I can barely remember what I wrote. I mean, maybe the last one, uh, December 7. Uh, 2010 was my last column, not the last thing I've written, because I'm obviously in the last 13 years, but that was the last column I wrote for the Washington Post. And in it, I tried to sort of what I'd done, thank people for putting up with it for years, decades. And so that piece of things uh, probably was revealing you know, in terms of what I believe in, uh, what I what I think about sports in general, um, what I think about the profession, um, why it's important to me, you know, probably reveal a little bit of myself uh, in that. But I don't know. There's just too many. There's just too many pieces over the years that are <clears throat> some of them are personal. Yes. Um, dealing with, you know, who I rooted for and why. Some of them dealt with. <laughs> life and death and you know uh moment yes mr Wilbur, why why is the profession uh so important to you uh because storytelling is important to me that's what i that's that's my love mm-hmm. you know, i got into this to be in storytelling and even though it's morphed and it's gone from writing as you have started me off talking about to mostly overwhelmingly talking yeah it's still storytelling no matter what the platform is no matter what the you know genre is it's still storytelling so that that that's why it matters to me more than the games you know it's the storytelling that is the first thing it could be about war or fashion or music or the arts or culture but or sports but it's the storytelling that's important to me i have been checking out uh the pti 20th anniversary special over the last couple of days. I listened to the podcast also in anticipation, uh, in preparation for this uh, interview. And one thing that was funny is you and Mr. Kornheiser, um, there was a clip when you said, uh, Tony doesn't really talk to anybody in the beginning. And in the very next clip, Mr. Kornheiser said, I love Will Bond from the beginning. Uh, (laughs) Early on, he used to kind of needle you a little bit in his own articles, but you would, oh, yeah. you would ultimately say, hey, he was kind of raising my stock? Oh, yeah, no question. I mean, he, he knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. He was setting up, you know, he was setting up in print a relationship that most people think came about in broadcast. It didn't. Mm-hmm. That relationship and the back and forth and the needling, that that was created by Tony. I wasn't a columnist then. Yeah. So I didn't even have, it wasn't equal. He created that. Um, he explained to people what they thought were the differences between us, even even though there are way more similarities probably. Um, Tony illuminated those and brought 
people to the relationship between two columnists at the Washington Post. And, and again, I got even two columnists at the beginning. He was the columnist. Right. I was a reporter. Right. And that's why I worked, really. You could have one person doing this who could poke fun at himself and at me. And it worked. It worked. You know, he, ra- he, he definitely raised my stock. In doing it. <laughs> it worked indeed. And that chemistry is something that we watch play out on TV every day. Those early days transitioning to television. What was the hardest part for you? Um, learning how to find your voice in each medium is a little different way. I mean, it, you know, um, in, in radio, it's different than television. In television, it's way different. And both of those is way different than newspaper. <clears throat> it's just how to communicate, how to keep an audience, how to appeal to that audience. Appealing to a radio audience is different than appealing to a television audience, to a newspaper, a magazine audience. And I worked for all of them uh, and loved working for all of them. But it, it is a transition there. What how to write for them, how to speak for them and to them. Very different. What was the fairest bit of criticism you received in those early days? And who, who did it come from? Well, you know, I tell a story about how when I first started writing a column, I would write on Saturday for Saturday newspaper. The fewest, the least read <laughs> newspaper was the Saturday newspaper. And George Solomon, my sports editor, uh, my mentor, my dear friend now of all these decades, George allowed me to write a column when I was in my late 20s, 28, 29, 30 years old. But he would put those columns often on Saturday morning where you have, you know, you feel like not that you can mess up, but you've got less a spotlight on you than if you're writing the Sunday newspaper, which would have been like three times as many people. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, 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 the readership of the Washington Post on a football Sunday in the 1980s would have been like 1.5 million. Mm-hmm. And Saturday might have been, I don't know, four or 500,000, maybe, maybe more than that, but uh, maybe certainly half. And I used to write on Saturday and, and Bill, Bill um, I'm sorry, Ralph Wiley, the great Ralph Wiley, friend and mentor writing them for sports illustrated Mm -hmm. knowing what was at stake for the handful of black uh columnists in america at the time i'm talking a handful i'm talking about four or five maybe not even that maybe three and you know terrence moore brian burwell uh roy johnson me that's it Mm -hmm. and all of us might not have been writing a column at the same time then but ralph wiley would pick up the phone read my saturday morning column and he would call my home phone back when there was tape. It wasn't digital. It was tape. This is the early 90s <clears throat> or late 80s. And Ralph would leave. <laughs> he would leave a critique of my columns in my last like eight minutes. I mean, would like run out the tape. And I'm like, like, I didn't ask for this. Who is dude to just be bleeding all this red ink and criticism on my column? Yeah. And it's very, it tests your self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And what Ralph was doing, of course, without being asked or prompted, he was, he was, he was going to take it upon himself as like the dean of us to say, okay, you got this column, you got this opportunity, you're going to be good at this. You're going to be good at this or else <laughs> we're going to die trying to make you that. And, you know, I used to first dread answering the phone or get my phone messages on Saturday. And then as I got, you know, a year or so into it, I would look forward uh, with great anticipation to hearing what Ralph had to say, understanding that there would be criticism. 
there might be some praise, but the criticism was more valuable than the praise. And so I have a debt I can never, ever, ever, ever repay to the great Ralph Wiley for helping me find my voice, uh, find out how to tell the story in column form uh, as a 28, 29 year old, 30 year old journalist, columnist for the Washington Post on that stage, stage that big um, and daunting. And it was important to get it right. Uh, you know, we, we couldn't afford to have, you know, I mentioned to you the people who wrote columns, then, the black columnists in sports. Yeah. It's a handful. Yeah. And all those people were successful, and we really couldn't afford somebody to butcher it. And Ralph Wiley wasn't about to allow that. Mr. Wilbur, you talk about the, the dearth of black writers, and I, I, that continues on the television screen also. And when certain topics come up that are like black topics, and the whole world is waiting to hear from people like you and Stephen A. Smith and Charles Barkley. I sit back and I wonder, like, how how fair is that to you guys? You know, there is no one black voice. Like, to, right. to carry that weight and that responsibility, like, what's that like? Yeah. Um, there's no fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't even wait for that. There's no, there's no point in it. Um, and I form opinions about almost everything anyway. Mm-hmm whether they are thought of by the audience as a black topic or not. And it's great you said that there's no, there's no one voice, mm-hmm. you know, as I know, as anybody can see from, you know, just any countdown show, Stephen A and I disagreeing what, so what's the one voice? Where is it? Mm-hmm. There isn't. And um, I, I never waited for it to be fair. That's a great question. Just it, it, it isn't going to be, I'm not waiting for it. Is not going to happen, nor should it, nor is there any interest in me, uh, for me, in trying to find out what that means. You know, you weigh in on topics of all kinds, no matter who you are, no matter what you look like. Uh, and that was not thought, that was not done easily 30 years ago right. when I first started doing this, 35 years ago. But but people got used to it. People had to get used to it. People weren't, you know, reading, reading particularly is habitual. And so people weren't used to know anybody who looked like me telling them what to think <laughs> yes, about a team or a player or a game or an issue, labor or management, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, MVP or runner up. People weren't used to anybody who looked like me yeah. telling them what to think about that. And that's one of the things that changed in the late 80s and early 90s, but not until then. Mm-hmm. You know, and people like Ralph and Roy Johnson, who were just a little bit older than me, had it tougher than me because there was nobody before them. At least I had those guys as sort of a as guideposts. They didn't have that. Yeah, when when I sit back and I watch and I, I'm looking at the Twitter sphere, go back and forth about your opinion or not, I, I'm like... I just, I just hope they're okay. You know what I'm saying? I just hope, like, this is a lot of responsibility. People raining down on them, like you said. I don't, I don't pay any attention to that, and I would, I would encourage anybody who does this for a living. I pay no attention. Mm. I haven't looked at Twitter on what somebody <laughs> thinks about my column. I haven't looked at it in years. Won't, don't, don't find it necessary. Um, if I need to get feedback, there are a lot more responsible places I can do it. <laughs> yes. Sir. Uh, in a lot more productive places than social media. So I don't, ever. Mr. Wilbon, with this anniversary special, they talked about Mike Wilbon was, was one of the, the most well-sourced 
individuals in the country. Uh, how did it come to be that you were one of the most well sourced? How did you go about uh, formulating uh, these sources or cultivating rather? Well, being a reporter for the Washington Post, there was no other way. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a problem with people who are just expressing opinions who have not sort of been apprentice, apprentices have not worked at that level. I, I don't really know if I trust their voices. I don't know if I trust their uh, way of expressing opinion, of, of convincing you what to believe. I mean, ultimately, column writing is me trying to convince you of what I believe. And I don't know if I trust them. Like, what are their sources? Who are their sources? How did they get them? I did it for the Washington Post. So I did it under that banner. Mm-hmm. I did it on that brand. One of the great brands of information and reporting in the history of information and reporting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I got the good housekeeping stamp of approval from, to me, the best and most important newspaper of its time. So that, that it's that simple. I did things you know, there are two institutions that fully formed who I am as, as a, a former journalist. I'm not a journalist anymore. Uh, they fully formed me. Medill School of Journalism in Northwestern, the best institution of its kind. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Washington Post, the best institution of its kind. And I know the New York Times would want to argue with that. Uh, and, and fairly so. Um, and some of the LA Times and maybe Boston Globe and, and, and Wall Street Journal. But it's a, it's a handful. It's only a handful. Yeah. And uh, I, I am grateful to have been shaped and educa- educated and shaped by those institutions. Mr. Everything I believe was formed by those institutions. Excellent. Mr. Wilmot, were you able to catch uh, Charles Barkley's segment on uh, 60 Minutes recently? I did. I did see it. How surprised are you that his uh, relationship with Michael Jordan has been fractured for uh, over 10 years now? How long? Well, I'm not surprised because I know about it each step of the way. (laughs) You know, it's not like I'm those guys are not, you know, (laughs) you know, casually known to me. Yeah. uh, What they think, what they feel, their personal lives. I mean, that's why I've long since I'm not a journalist anymore. Mm. Uh, and so, um, you know, they, they're, they're friends, both of them, yes. each of them. Yes. And so I'm very familiar. I'm disappointed it's gone on this long, and I've tried to bridge it, but I haven't been able to do that. But uh, I, I love them both, and I hope it can be bridged. <laughs> I don't care who does it. I just hope it can be. So am I surprised? No, I know. I, I'm, you know, I'm in the middle of the discussion, so I, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty familiar. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, Michael Jordan was a little bit upset about something Charles Barkley said publicly on a radio station years ago. Mr. Wilbur, how do you balance doing your job, going on the television screen, giving strong opinions, and balancing your relationships with the athletes, with the, the, the uh, people in sport? Uh, you do it all the time. Uh, you know, you, you do that. That's part of what growing up in the business does. And at first, it's more difficult. You, as you get more comfortable in your own skin about how you're reporting something and how you're conducting relationships and people understanding that what you do is more important to you than what they do. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, you know, this is, you know, my work and my, my ethics, uh, my sense of fairness and my, you know, and I, don't, I don't always get it right. 
Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, we don't always get it right. No journalist always gets it right. So, uh, you know, those things evolve over time. Mm-hmm. And they were very different at 21 years old and 27 years old and 35 years old and 50 years old and 64 years old. Very different. Very, very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and they evolve. And your ability to deal with news sources evolves. Mm-hmm. And so I'm no different, than, I'm sure, than any journalist, of veteran journalist, veteran reporter, veteran columnist, opinion maker, uh, who has to, you know, sort of navigate that territory. Recently, it came out that Michael Jordan may be looking to sell uh, the Hornets. Uh, Mr. Wilbon, as I I do a podcast, I try to look at things from many different angles, consider uh, all the information, but I keep coming back to the same thing. Like, is it possible that the great Michael Jordan is is quitting? I wouldn't. I don't think. I don't think selling your business for seven times what you paid for it is quitting. I mean, that's that's what's called investing to me. Yeah. Uh, now, if we're just looking, if you're just looking at the athletic part of it, okay. But that's not what any owner of any franchise is just looking at. I mean, I think he paid less than three hundred million dollars, or about. Let's say he paid three hundred million dollars. Let's say he did. I'm not sure of the numbers, but mm-hmm. let's just say I'm, I'm in the ballpark. Let's say he paid about $300 million and then, and then he's got, uh, you know, he's going to wind up selling for two and a half billion. Right. I mean, you know, um, I don't, I don't see that as quitting at all. I, I, I would trust me if that happens, I will call and congratulate. Him. <laughs> no, because we see a lot of these in, uh, owners try to hang on to these teams. You know, it's the power. Uh, you know, Dan. Well, but that, but that's at a different. Not at these prices. I mean, yeah, <laughs> people want to hang on if they're viable, if they're making money, and if it depends on what kind of market they're in. Yeah. Um, but you know, we just saw a forced sale essentially in Washington. Yes. Where that owner paid eight hundred million dollars and wound up getting six point one billion dollars. So again, a seven, seven hundred percent. You know, seven times the, the investment. So, no, I mean, there's, you know, this is not just about, it it, it is sport because they're competitive people, Mm -hmm. but um, there's so much to it. There's there's so much more to it than that, and it better be. And we as a people have to look at this as what it is, business at the highest level, a a, a level that we don't have many people operating at, very few. Uh, so Bob Johnson did it. Michael Jordan's done it. Magic's done it. I mean, we got we have a handful. We got you can count on one hand. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a level of business that transcends sports. I mean, yeah, it's linked with sports, but it transcends. Right. Mr. Wilbon, is baseball that was your first love, right? Yep. I grew up cheering for black baseball players, Kenny Lofton, Ken Griffey, Barry Bonds. Um, we don't seem to have too many today. Um, is that a problem? Or what impact do you think that's going to have, I guess, on society in the next few years? None. None? Uh, because, you know, I grew up cheering for Willie Mays and Ernie Banks and Henry Aaron. Does it, did it have any negative impact on me? Uh, no. Would I like to see more? Yes. And remember, I wouldn't. I won't say black players. I'm gonna say African American players. Okay. Hold on. Um. So, uh, 
you know, they're they're players of color. Yeah. You know, obviously you got you got everybody from Cuba to Venezuela to Dominican to you know, you know I mean, baseball's an international sport. Yeah. This is so I, I'm not going to confuse today's baseball with 1945 because it is. And it doesn't mean if that African American kid, no, nobody's banning African American kids from baseball. Right. African American kids are self-selecting into basketball and football overwhelmingly. But uh, you know that's on us, mm-hmm. and I would say that we need to make sure our, our interests uh, remain diverse. Mr. Wilbur, I mean, how really. how are those AAU weekends with your young son? Uh, they're instructive. <laughs> they're, yeah, what are you learning? They're full of smaller towns and, you know, uh, you know, motels and <laughs> diners. And, uh, you know, you, you, you learn about what's important. You're reminded, in my case, of how important things are to kids and what you, you know, what you found important your whole life. I grew up with baseball like that for me, it's baseball for me. It wasn't AAU back then, but you know, it was still playing. It was getting on a bus. Parents didn't drive to see their kids everywhere. Mm-hmm. My parents never saw me play a high school baseball game. I take that back. My mother saw me play one the morning after prom, but she had to drive me. <laughs> my father, who was hands-on involved every day of my life, never saw me play a high school baseball game. Mm-hmm. He couldn't get to work. Yeah. That's not the world we live in anymore. You know, two parents are at the games. I'm like, what, you know, and you, and you really better be with people that make you feel bad. Yeah. And it's too bad. It's just, it's too bad. I mean, you know, uh, but I've learned, uh, you know, about what's important. Adults have ruined sport, youth sports, where kids can't play more than one now because you gotta concentrate on one sport and go to the off season training and practice every day. You know, we played every sport growing up. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons I think that people get injured in the ways they do now. Right. You know, kids get Tommy John because they weren't also quarterbacks and point guards and, you know, you know, whatever else that you played at the time, horseshoes. Played every sport there is. Mm-hmm. Played everything. The notion that I wasn't going to play a sport because I had to practice in the offseason for one of them. That's a sin, actually. It's a <laughs> sin against children. And we got nobody but ourselves to play. Yeah. yeah. When I see some of these headlines, AAU basketball, always talking about like, like I guess the unsavory characters that are hanging around uh, these places, the sneaker execs and stuff. And a few years ago, there was a whole big shakeup uh, with college basketball. A few people got arrested. Uh, uh, was it? Rick Patino was fired. Yeah. But now we he's right back in the Big East at St. John's. You know. What, what what are we supposed to do with situations like that? You know, in, in that case, a whole bunch of black lower-level executives went to jail, and it seemed like the, the head coaches went on unscathed, and here's Rick Pitino in the Big East with a big-time job. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that I – I mean, the, the, the person who has functioned as the bag man has always been at greater risk, right? Yeah. Boss man has been at less risk. I don't, I don't know that I get particularly – People know what they're doing. Yeah. They know what they're doing when they're doing it. And if they choose to, okay. And there might be consequences. And I don't really have a lot of sympathy for the people who come out on the short end of that because they were on the small end, the beginning end, the beginning 
of of the process. So I, I it does is not something that uh, it's not something that preoccupies me. Okay. Uh, I found I found and I, th- that episode of it, by the way, did that because I know guys who were checked out by the FBI. Yeah. I know them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're like, you know what? You knew what you were doing. What are you doing? <laughs> you chose to to do that. So I'm not, uh, I'm not outraged. Do, do I think you have to be vigilant if you're a parent? Hell yeah. yeah. You know, that's your job as a parent to be vigilant. That's my job. But I'm not expecting other people to do that for me. Fair enough. Fair enough. Mr. Wilbon, I, I, I'll let you go on this one, but it's, it's a long one. You've co-written two books with the great Charles Barkley. Uh, you have a book coming out this summer with the great Chris Paul. What is that process like uh, co-writing with uh, these athletes? And have you ever considered writing your own book? And what would the title be? I've considered it and dismissed it. It's too hard. <laughs> and, uh, my memory's not good enough. Uh, so I've literally dismissed it, even though people try to talk me into it. And the people that are relevant to my story, mm-hmm. they're not relevant to the people who would be reading it. Mm-hmm. You know, I would want 15, 18, and 21-year-olds to read it. They don't care. They don't, they're not interested in Michael Jordan and Julius Irving and Larry Bird and Magic. I mean, it, on some level, like they're museum pieces. They're not, they don't really identify. Mm-hmm. They, you know, we don't get to, we don't, we, in five years, they won't even, it, Kobe will be in that previous group. You're right. Not the group now. So, and I, I'm, I didn't spend as much time with LeBron, you know, and, and this generation that is now, even Nick, Le, LeBron's, been around 20 years, almost 40 years old. In 10 years, LeBron's going to be in the in that previous group. Yes, sir. So it's a short shelf life. I have no interest in, I'm not going to try to tell a story to update it to make it include, you know, John Morant. I don't know John Morant. <laughs> you know, John Morant, she's going to be my grandson. I don't, I don't know John Morant. Um, and so I have no. So no for me. And with those guys you mentioned, look, those are two of the, those are like, that's a blessing. They're they're just not more uh, observant, insightful, engaging people than Charles Barkley and Chris Paul. I mean, there's a group of people like that. Like if I had a chance to write a book with Grant Hill is what what I've done. Yes, Mm -hmm. I've been an editor for Grant. Would I have loved that? Of course I would have. I mean, there are people like that in every sport um, who are just engaging people that you love listening to. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I'm lucky. Yeah. I mean, Charles wanted me to do this. I was glad I did it, and I owe him mm-hmm. <laughs> because, you know, being a good listener—that's what it's got. That—that's what it is. Just listen. Yeah. Listen and draw those guys out. Have a conversation. Mm-hmm. They're com- They're great conversationalists. Chris Paul is, and they have great curiosity about everything. Mm-hmm. Chris Paul is a just engaged on every topic he's observant you know you can sit around and talk about stuff with chris paul for a day and some of it may not involve basketball at all and so it's an honor to 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 be asked by those guys to help them tell their stories that's what i did i was i'm an editor in both cases i'm editing two incredibly uh insightful curious uh, engaging conversant people in each case. Mr. Wilbon, this was amazing. Um, I can't thank you enough for your time and joining me here on this show. 
Well, you're welcome, man. You're welcome. I, I hope it. I hope that's a. <laughs> I hope that'll be of some value <laughs> to your listeners. Without like I said, figure it out. The audience is everything. So I, I appreciate it. You giving me the chance to talk about that stuff, and uh, I, I enjoy. I enjoyed it myself. All right, sir. Thank you. All right. Good luck. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it.